Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me that I was bipolar. I was released with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for about a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using music for therapy and as a way to escape. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. For nothing, and there was most of us raised in unemployment lines, growing the domestic crimes. Always against the odds, born with the underdogs. Johnny Boucher of Hope for the Day lost his friend Mike Scanlon to suicide in 2010. When Mike took his life, Johnny lost a mentor and a friend, someone that worked alongside him in the music industry. Sadly, Mike was the ninth of 16 people that Johnny has lost to suicide. He had to take action, so he left his work promoting shows and formed Hope for the Day, an organization that educates people about suicide prevention. As suicide rates grow, now more than 800,000 people die at their own hands each year. Johnny's organization has spoken about suicide prevention to more than 15,000 people in 2019 alone. The message spreads, and Johnny's hope is that we can prevent as many people as possible from feeling like they have no other choice. Suicide is a preventable disease. If only we could get around the stigma of mental illness and blow open the doors in this conversation. Hey, I'm Johnny Boucher from Hope for the Day. We're a proactive suicide prevention and mental health education charity here in Chicago, Illinois. And before I started Hope for the Day in 2011, I was a independent concert promoter from the age of 13. I'm 35 now, but I grew up in the Chicago punk rock and hardcore scene. And Music was always my safe space, and beyond putting on shows, it became a way of making money. But unfortunately, in 2010, my boss, Mike Scanlon, jumped from his fifth floor balcony uh, here in the city of Chicago and kind of rocked my world. Mike was always the, I always say he was my Robin Williams. He was always the guy that wanted to have a laugh and had a good time and masked a lot of the things that unfortunately ultimately made him take his own life. But Mike taught me a lot. We did a lot of big concerts and festivals in our short time together. But I wanted to do something to honor Mike's life because I realized Mike was number nine on a list of 16 people that I've personally lost to suicide. And the one common denominator between everybody that I've lost is that no one wanted to talk about it. So after Mike took his life, I decided that we needed to start talking about it a lot more. And that's why our goal at Hope for the Day is empowering the conversations on proactive suicide prevention through outreach and mental health education. So our goal is to simply just meet people where they're at, to let them know it's okay not to be okay, which is our copywritten tagline. Can you give me a sense of where Mike was at, you know, leading up to his suicide? Yeah, we were, we were kicking ass and Mike was in his Uh, early 40s, very successful, recently married after, you know, kind of living a life of, you know, some demons, you know, promiscuous 
uh, relationships, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, but ultimately he, like me, thrived off of giving people a safe space at concerts to just kind of let go and get away from life um, for a couple hours. And we, you know, it, we turned it into a business, but Mike was uh, masking a lot of things like a lot of people do, unfortunately. And it ultimately drove him to feel like the only place that he uh, was to go was to jump off of his balcony, the one that the Chicago Tribune wrote about months prior because it was so extravagant and he was such a uh, hustler and bustler of the city of Chicago. Yeah, you touched on a quote that you like to use on your website. And the quote is, if we are going to be proactive about mental health, we must meet people where they are and not where we expect them to be. Yeah. So can you expand on that? You know, I'm not a mental health expert. People call me an expert all the time. And, I'm, and we at Hope for the Day, we're, we're all peer-led and peer-based, but we are clinically backed. So we do have a bunch of clinicians that sign off on our, on our education workshops and really validate you know, the kick-ass work that we do. But my whole theory was you know, kind of how I, you know, started doing punk rock and hardcore shows, you know, the mentality of the ability they will come was really the truth for the misfits and the, uh, the people who weren't, you know, the jocks and stuff like that, like me. And also the people that were like the jocks that wanted to, you know, get rough in the mosh pit, you know, so for everything and anything that I, I've ever done, it's always been about bringing people together. And our theory, I hope for the day of meeting people where they're at is simply just saying like, listen, mental health for so long has so much shamed people for certain things and certain lifestyles and blame that for why people take their life. And I'm a firm believer that we, we can work with alcohol and we can talk about AA in bars. We can talk about the uncomfortable conversations, just like we've made it become a conversation for gamblers anonymous and whatnot. People go to concerts all the time to get, get away from things. So what better way to, interact with people then let them know that you know hey this isn't if you're depressed call this number this is hey what's this it's okay not to be okay thing stand for what's the, what's hope for the day can you tell me more and then when you tell them they're so vulnerable because they've been able to escape for a little bit that they are like wow that's amazing my life's been impacted this way or maybe i've struggled or wow thank you for that i know someone who could use these resources so our goal of just meeting people right and not you know, where they expect them to be allows them to feel much more comfortable when approaching the conversation we feel. And it's just so important that we don't corner people when we have to have a conversation around mental health. It's that we circle around them and we give them support to open and feel as free as they can so they can articulate what they're going through. Because if we don't give them that space, how are we going to be able to know one, what is causing the pain and two, what can we do to help? Stigma is such a barrier for mental health. How do you feel about the punk scene and stigma there? Is it lesser than mainstream society? I think that the punk rock and hardcore scene has always had this mentality of if there's a problem in the world, we can talk about it. So I feel like there is not necessarily a stigma around talking about wellness and, and, and mental well-being because, I mean, that's how I found out about being vegan was just like walking one of my shows and I was like, oh, cool. We gave a little record pop-up spot right there. That's cool. And then all of a sudden, like, what's this vegan cookie? How is this vegan? What makes this different? All right, what are the health benefits? Oh, holy shit. And then all of a sudden, a long time down the road, here I am. I'm 35 years old and proud to uh, have a nice grill in my backyard, but know that I'm a vegan and that's how I use it. So I think that there's not that stigma. I think the stigma, though, around still aggressive music, you know, the tough guy and, you know, individual mentality is still there. But it's also because 
you know, I feel like my friends in the Acacia strain always talk about, you know, we need this as an outlet. So get it out, you know, let it out. But don't let it be this thing that makes you put up a front and act like you're tougher than you really are. Because who the fuck are you trying to fool other than yourself? Do you miss working in the music industry? I miss it in a sense because I miss the thrill, the excitement, the challenge of being like, all right, how do we sell a show out? How do we get this tour off the ground? But I transitioned a lot of my work from the concert promotion and artist management world right into Hope for the Day because so much that we started off doing, you know, when we first started was just partnering with all my friends that were in bands and saying, hey, can we utilize your platform? And that's how we became one of the most impactful charities on the Vans Warp Tour was because we were the only charity that consistently had someone going up and telling people, yo, if you're struggling, enjoy this time and take advantage of this time while you're here with your community and talk to us over at the Hope for the Day tent. We did a bang up job on that tour, you know, from 2014 until it ended last year. And that allowed me to still have my like, oh, cool, we still are working in music because we we did so much internationally with bands through touring. But again, we're still a mental health organization, but we would do concerts all the time. We would do like really fun things to, you know, we brought like a band from the UK over one time who had, I found out they were breaking up. I'm like, you guys have never played, you know, the States. I can find cheap tickets from London to Chicago. We could do this at this venue. They're like, dude, no one's going to come. We announced it and it sold out in a day. And I was like, there you go. <laughs> so it's just that gamble's there. But we, I just like doing it for a good cause now. Did lots of punks confide in you at the booths? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kicked ass uh, out there. And then, you know, we, we were able to build some other partnerships with other festivals around the country and around the world um, because we were always this so easy to talk to. And the Vans Warp Tour, um, I personally spoke over 1,200 times in the six years that we were a part of that tour. So when you're constantly hearing this message and then all of a sudden, you know, your tent is front and center, like because we would work with the tour on just giving it, you know, accessibility. But then also working with the tour on providing um, mental health education workshops, too. I mean, we just did this over-the-top job that allowed us to not only be very effective fan-facing, but we were very effective behind the scenes because Warp Tour was at some points traveling with seven to 800 people on the tour as far as production goes with bands and nonprofits and all this other shit. So it's like, that's a community. That's a moving community. And there was a lot of hardships that we'd have to face within that community that I'm grateful that we had a seat at the table, but also could help navigate and mitigate some of the hardship of having those conversations and just allow people to know it's okay not to be okay and that we can talk about these things. But there were some, you know, there are definitely a lot of things that I thought I was going to do in my music career that I was able to accomplish at a young age in my life. But, you know, there's still always the desire to nurture them this way because I feel that it's more effective and I can do more for others other than just serve myself with this platform. Tell me about when you first got into punk and how that affected you. So, okay, I can't have a conversation about how I got into punk without how I got into hip hop. So at the age of seven, I had already gone to uh, a Garth Brooks concert. I had already gone to a couple other like country western acts. Ooh. Oh, I know. <laughs> my mom's from northern Wisconsin and my dad's from Peoria, Illinois. So like my dad came with the soul, funk, R&B, and my mom came with the country. And their powers combined, I my very first concert was Garth Brooks, 1989 Thunder Rolls Tour. But... My sister actually 
exposed me because I got my I got like a Walkman and my, I just you know had my parents' favorite artist CDs. I really didn't have a say in anything. And then my sister bought Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, and the day it came out, and so she's like, "I'm gonna listen to this new CD." And uh, I was like, oh, word. All right, well, I want to listen to it as well. So she went downstairs or something, and I listened to it, and I was like, this is so raw. What the hell is this? So I ended up stepping on the jewel case and telling her that I broke the CD, and I already threw it out. And I'm sorry, but we'll get you another one. And that night, I went in my room, and I listened to the unexplicit version of Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, front to back. And I was just amazed by what I heard, because I'd never heard anything like that. But also, it allowed me to be like, you know what? There's life outside of this country music. <laughs> and um, I'm so honest about this. But then I started scamming Columbia House and BMG where you could like order 20 you know, CDs and just pay for shipping. I scammed the shit out of those things when I was like 9 and 10 years old. When I was in fifth grade, I had a Case Logic CD holder that was the most diverse music collection any kid probably had at that time. Because I was still only 10 years old, right? And that is where I found my love for heavy metal. That's where I found my love for a lot of the grunge that was out there. And then also the crazy amount of hip hop that I was falling in love to. Because then I started understanding like the backgrounds of all of this, which then allowed me to go, yo, I'm going to this thing called Ozfest. All these like cool metal bands, but yo, this band Hatebreed. Yo, this band Deftones that were like, opening my eyes to different things that ultimately got me into punk and hardcore that I'm just so grateful for because I went from hate breed into anything and everything that I could get my hands on from 88 Finger Louie to Apocalypse Hoboken to then Dillinger Escape Plan to Bane to American Nightmare to just everything. I just had this universal view on music and I'm just so grateful for it because I feel like I kind of like stumbled upon it, but my parents really embraced it. And that's why when I was 13, my parents were like, you want to start putting on shows? I'm like, hell yeah. And uh, I started putting on shows then and just kept falling in love in community and local scenes all around the country, which you know led me to do a lot of a lot of shows before I even played in my own bands for a short time of period. But then I realized that if I was going to really do anything with this, I'd have to get into the uh, bigger picture of bigger festivals and stuff like that, which punk rock wasn't really. We're just seeing punk rock really be valued on a big grand stage, you know, now in the modern day. But back in the late 90s, I mean, it was still, you know, you're talking about your Fireside Bowl, you're talking about the Arlington Heights Nights at Columbus Hall here in Chicago, like those were like the nostalgic venues that when you look at show flags, you're like, no fucking way that band played with that band with that other band on that stage for 150 people. Bullshit. Yeah, that's cool. One of the things that I found after my diagnosis was looking back at some of the music that I grew up on and realizing how real it was about mental health, like suicidal tendencies. I mean, those guys are, you know, they're going through a lot of stuff. And at the time, I just thought, oh, this is shock value, right? Did you have anything like that in regards to looking back and seeing songs about suicide or mental illness? There are definitely a couple tracks that like I leaned into. I also was like a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan right when Melancholy came out. That side, I really dove into Nirvana when I was younger, too. So, like, I think that I was, like, always around it. But then when I got into punk rock and hardcore, it kind of magnified it. So when I would go back to those albums, I would go, holy shit, this is really what they were talking about. It's like anything in life. You think about it 20, 30 years ago, we weren't thinking about these things in general. But 
you go and listen to any Soundgarden record, you're like, holy shit, this was real. You know, Chris Cornell and his feelings were very real. Back in the day, they were talking about this. Yet this is still a fucking problem for our society to talk about. So why do we have to lean just on the artists to pour their hearts out and then ultimately possibly take their own life or live a life of filling void with drug and alcohol abuse? I mean, there's so many things, but we we learn from artists so much. I mean, look what comedians do for us. They make us laugh at the most rotten shit in the world, but we laugh at it because they said it. And that's what we're all just waiting for. Someone to fucking say this shit so we can all go... Yeah, I've been thinking the same way. That's the issue for mental health. But I felt that the sense of community and struggle and survival within your community was a message that was very, very fluid within punk rock and hardcore. I understood a lot more because of my desire and my sense for community growing up in general. On the website, it says 120 people each day. Why do you think suicide rates have gotten so high? Well, one, because, you know, we, we know more. I know that when we started uh, Hope for the Day in 2011, there wasn't a whole lot of accessibility to current suicide data, more, you know, mental health trends like there are now. But on top of that, we're so much more connected. So we're going to be hearing about things more and more, which means that we might be unfortunately influenced in that manner or think that that's the only possible solution because of our online presence and how we're very, very open and exposed society now. But I've always also said, I think this shit's been going on for a long time. And until we got to a place where it was probably recorded and we've been living, you know, in the same dark corner that cancer was um, and that HIV was at one point in time, these are all, all these things were hiding in these corners, impacting our lives, but we didn't know what we knew about or what we know about them now until Someone got fucking fed up and said, you know what, enough's enough. I'm over this shit. I'm going to bring some light on this. And that, to me, is punk rock as fuck. And you being out there and educating people on the stage before the show is 15,000 people approximately. How does that make you feel? It was cool. I mean, I, I always lived by this mentality that I still do today is that it's not about me, it's about we. And if you take yourself out of it, you just make it so much easier to talk to people because essentially it's utilize your voice when i one thing i found i learned uh, the hard way in the music industry was you know how much people were i don't know screwing you over for money and, and it was just like a cutthroat industry and i was like that's not why i love music i love music for the community aspect of it and that's why our roi at hope for the day is human impact the more people we educate the more people we get resources to the more we can enable people to be proactive in their own communities because that's what we need to do in society so there's there's so much more value brought to my life going this route and nurturing others because the same conversation that we that we you know have done on you know many tours in the u.s we started doing at the same time in, in places like europe so being able to again utilize music as the tool to connect folks with resources or just a sense of well-being that you can have a fucking string of bad days but pick yourself back up just like falling in the fucking mosh pit right like we we need to look out for everyone when they fall down but when we fall down we also need to be able to say hey help me up it's really a two-way street so i feel that it's so much more nourishing to my soul and, the, and our our team's soul to know that the work we do makes real impact what are some of the bands in your circle that talk about this stuff that could help people that go to the shows? 
Well, you know, the thing is, is that we've, we've really created a, a nice platform to plug and play and allow anybody who wants to seat at the table to be involved. So we've worked with so many different bands from the Gaslight Anthem before they, they popped as a big band. We worked with the guys in like Neck Deep, State Champs. We've worked with so many fucking bands, to be completely honest. But the thing is, is that any of them, local or international, anybody that steps up to the plate and utilizes their opportunity when they're able to play shows to say, yo, we work with this organization called Hope for the Day. Some of you may not know who they are, but they're here to let you know that wherever you are in your journey, you know, it's okay not to be okay. So we have some mental health resources that are available at our table. Like that takes fucking courage, right? But like, I remember working with Jonathan Davis from Corn on his speech. It was just so profound because I grew up also a fan of Corn, and I was like, whoa, this dude's asking me for what he should say right now. But then same thing happens with our friend Waka Flocka, the rapper, you know, from Atlanta. Like his brother died by suicide. So like we've had this conversation. But it doesn't, you know, matter who it's doing. It's how passionate they've done it. And so that's why, you know, I look at like the guys in the band Mastodon who – did, you know, a very courageous thing, not only for the organization, but for their, you know, their community. They did a special show with us at the Metro in 2017. That was a massive underplay and played Crack the Sky, their, you know, a lot of people's favorite album. But then they really took the time to make sure that they address the things that are going on and why they are on the stage that night, not just to their fans, but to ignite the fans to go out and, re- and give that same message to anybody in their in their sphere of influence that may be having a fucking rough go at life. Totally, yeah. And the story there with Mastodon, I think it was one of the members' sister that committed suicide? Braun, uh, their drummer, his sister, Sky, which cracked this guy is all about his sister. You know, she completed at a young age, and they they definitely had a lot to learn from that. But uh, it was, you know, very, very, you know, eye-opening. And I had the opportunity, actually, to go down to his uh, house in Atlanta and film with him and just learn more about, you know, what it was like to live with and then all of a sudden without, you know, your sister, who was pretty much your partner in crime. But Crack the Sky pays homage to her as well as to anybody who's, you know, been impacted or struggled. And, you know, just a great example. But, you know... There's so many amazing bands that we've been able to to partner with in the pop punk and the emo world. They just get the the keys and they drive. And it's cool because I feel like I'm able to not just have amazing friends, but friends who can take a very simple moment out of their show, whether Hope for the Day is in the room or not, and, and make some fucking impact and talk about things that everybody's just wishing that we could talk about more more openly and easily to just realize that we're all human beings and we all eat, sleep, shit, and cry, really. And you've got some great ideas for prevention. Can you expand on those as well? Yeah. We understand that in society, and I think that 2020 is really shining a light on it, that wherever you are in the world, you're able to poke holes in maybe the education you're given or the lack of education that you're given growing up and some of the unfortunate cultural and societal stigmas that we've lived within you know so one of them is just like the lack of education around mental health so for us we really feel that you can't give something you don't have and we haven't we weren't able to really put a a finger on a great program that we could say hey we want to partner with so we just had to create it and so we have peer-led but clinically backed 
one hour, four hour, and eight hour mental health education workshops that are, you know, available to the public and, you know, all walks of life. And there's a lot of appropriate ones for the military. We have a great program for the military folks, whether you're active or you're, you're a veteran. Uh, we have a great program for the food and beverage industry. Uh, and we have, we're also working on right now, right uh, one for the LGBTQ community. And the reason is, is just because there's been such a lack of proper education when it comes to mental health that we just decided that this is the best tool to get to give to communities because, you know, again, we can get people educated and then they can go be that one to start the conversation. And we live in a world where, you know, you educate one, you can educate a million, but it's just about being able to make it digestible. And when we're talking about a very scary subject like mental health and suicide, it's hard to talk about. And we recognize that we still have hard days on our own for our staff, but we know that the more we talk about, the more we realize that we're not fucked up, crazy, or insane. We're all human beings going through a thing called life. So if that's a great entry point, then that's awesome because there's a lot of people, uh, young and old, who haven't been told that they can talk about their feelings. They can be open about it, you know, because we, you know, you and I, we live with the stigma that, you know, boys don't cry. I say, bullshit, I cry all the fucking time. But because of that stigma, people have held back. So for us, it's just, you know, if we can get education into someone's hands, that's great. But we are very aggressive. We try to get in front of as many people as possible. We do a lot of murals. We do a lot of collaborations with artists and food companies. And we also have our coffee shop in Chicago, Sip of Hope, that is a safe space. It's uh, open seven days a week, but it's also filled with resources right then and there, right when you open the door, not when you walk all the way through to the bathroom. And it's because... We know that, you know, mental health should be accessible, just like getting a cup of coffee. And we have really good coffee, too. So it's the world's first coffee that 100 percent of the proceeds support suicide prevention and mental health education. But it, again, it gives us an opportunity to meet people where they're at, just like the way that we work with the alcohol industry. We work with the non-alcoholic industry in the same way. But we're the only mental health organization that's out there releasing beers around the, you know, the country to let people know that, hey, you can – have a string of rough days, but you can also talk about it. And if you need to have a beer while you talk about it, then have this beer. The beers we have, they have how to talk, you know, numbers, numbers and resources on it. I mean, it's just a real bang up job, but it's still also an easy way to talk about the conversation. We just really believe that however we can just activate that conversation, then it's up to us to then figure out what's the next route to get person the resources and the education opportunities that we have because we got to build that gap that hasn't been fulfilled by society because, unfortunately, we've for so long allowed stigma to hold us back instead of actually leaning in and uh, really having the hard conversations that we all deserve. Mike's suicide is what brought all this on. When he took his life, how did that affect you personally? I was shook because Mike was the person that I thought I was aspiring to be. But I was more shook because Mike's suicide left me with questions uh, about the other people that I lost. And at that point in time, I'd only, you know, like I said, Mike was number nine on a list of, of people that I lost to suicide. But one of the people on that list was my uncle John and on my mom's side of the family. Uh, my uncle John was my favorite and I go on record. He's still my favorite. I don't care if any of the family members are listening. He was, he's, he was the best one. Um, and it's because he was the real one. And when he took his life, it really uh, opened my eyes to what alcohol could do to somebody. And because he drank himself to death. 
you know, he was a full-fledged alcoholic and he wasn't good if he, unless he was drunk or if he was on the golf course, which that was one of the other things we loved to do was play golf. But Mike, when Mike took his life, it really opened my eyes. I was like, man, I don't know if there's many people that have been impacted this much. But then my aunt took her life, same thing on my mom's side of the family, shortly after Mike. And unfortunately, the list has just added up. But it's like having the shittiest golf score ever and having to publicly say it all the time. But I'd rather speak up about it than allow myself to live in silence, allow others to live in silence. Because when someone takes their life, that's not that's not their whole story. That's unfortunately how it ended. But there's so much else there. And so that's why I, I just I feel that it's our life's duty to honor our experiences and I have see something say something tattooed on my left hand and it's because I was just done seeing it and not doing anything about it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. You can connect with me at soundcloud.com slash scream therapy. Thanks again for listening and until next time, take care and be well. I can't keep it